0: Katrina Sedgwick is the director and CEO of the Australian Centre for the Moving Image (ACMI), which opened its doors originally at Fed Square back in 2002. And Katrina, while All of us have been in lockdown. The ACME team have been hard at work preparing not only for a reopening, but I think it's fair to say a reimagining not only of ACME, but a reimagining of what a museum can be in the 21st century.
1: Absolutely. Great to be here, Richard. It's been a fascinating time for us. We closed in May 2019 for this big renewal project that we've been planning for the last kind of five years. And so when COVID came, we were already shut. We were deep in this very comprehensive reimagining of our physical museum, which included a, you know, we're going to completely reimagine our free permanent exhibition, new foyer spaces, new school laboratories, a new place for our collections activity. Very, very comprehensive changes right across the museum that are going to be fantastic. And part of that was also thinking about the kind of opportunity that digital technology gives us to engage with our visitors and extend the experience of their visit so what can happen they can come into the physical museum they can use technology to walk around the museum and collect the things that they're interested in whether it be a film screening that they've seen in the cinema whether it be a sort of installation in the foyer or one of the 900 objects that are going to be in our new permanent exhibition, which we're calling the story of the moving image. And so we invested a lot of time, huge amounts of human capital, I suppose, working on this kind of digital experience that extended the visitor experience. And then COVID happened and we were running a few programs offsite at that time we had education programs we had some screenings that we'd be doing at the capital theater with RMIT including Melbourne Tech. and we were running industry programs sort of weekly panel sessions and workshops and so on and covid came and we moved those things online and as we've all discovered <laughs> in this extensive lockdown the barriers that we had to engaging with some kinds of cultural content through the screen suddenly had to go and all of us had to skill up and become very comfortable with engaging with culture and ideas and conversation and connection through our screens. And it opened up this big opportunity for us to think about how we could extend our museum into digital spaces and become a truly multi-platform museum. And I suppose that's what we've announced this week, that, that we're moving into this multi-platform museum where we have physical spaces and virtual
0: spaces ongoing. There was a great quote from one of your team there at Acme, Seb Chan, the Chief Experience Officer, speaking with The Age. He talked about the fact that we still seem to divide our lives into URL versus IRL, but everything is IRL in real life. It's just that some of it is now happening digitally, but we still experience it in the same way that we would walk around a museum normally. We're just doing it from home. So the fact that Acme is seizing this opportunity to, instead of separating the real world and the digital world, it's bringing them together in quite an unprecedented way for a museum.
1: Yeah, that's right. And one of the tools that has enabled us to do this has been, you know, part of Seb. Sort of digital vision as our chief experience officer and is created with this big team of, of developers that we've had, fantastically talented coders and imaginers. Um, they've created this experience operating system, and it's the XOS, and it essentially is described as like a, an architecture software, but it sits behind the museum and kind of drives content out of our collection system into the exhibition, into the website, into virtual exhibition spaces. That's kind of groundbreaking. I mean, that that is something that I think museums around the world will be getting to in a few years. And I think it places us right at the forefront of very kind of progressive museum practice globally to have this system. But conceptually as well, as Deb says, we are engaging with culture and ideas, whether it's happening digitally and physically They are very different kinds of experiences and the the digital versions are in no way anticipated to replace the physical version. It's not an or, it's an and. But we have these tools, we have these opportunities to extend the experience and and the way that we, alongside, so so there are spaces. So for example, we've got our two beautiful cinemas on site, Cinema 1, Cinema 2, and we'll continue to program them and people will continue to come and have perhaps more distant, socially distanced, Experiences, you know, watching incredible films on 35 Bell, on DPC, you know, in beautiful digital quality with fantastic sound together in a darkened space. But we're also going to have a cinema three, which will be programmed, tightly programmed and curated with beautiful rare films that will complement the in-cinema experience. We're launching Gallery 5, which is a new temporary gallery space which Chief Curator, Sarah Tutton, will be programming with her team around digital-made content, that is artworks and content that is created for an online space. So as a Museum of the Moving Image, that's a fantastic place that we should be in. And also the team has taken this time during lockdown, which has sort of extended renewal experience and, and delayed our opening, obviously, for, as it has for everybody. We've used that time to take the amazing digital and physical assets and the curatorial ideas that have been embedded in the physical museum, the story of the Moving Image, and they've kind of extended out from that and told a whole lot of new stories for a digital Version of that exhibition. It's not a recording of the physical one, it's an extension of the physical one into the digital space. But we're kind of thinking also that, in a way, our museum is almost a magazine because I think what we're all finding now, you know, we're all so comfortable with being curious and discovering things for ourselves through the net. We're also the victim of algorithms that feed us content constantly and what Acme is really interested in is creating a human curated library if you like or magazine of content that you can explore yourself depending on what you're interested in and you can find connections and discover new things with the aid of our curators. So when you go into the story of the moving image online and we've got the three strands that we've revealed this week one's focusing on Australian television one's focusing on Australian film and the other one's focusing on the Eyes of video games and its sort of impact across our culture. You can go in and explore all these things, but you'll be able to find tangents and rabbit holes and explore connections between things. There's a whole library of wonderful content in our stories and ideas section, essays, videos, images, and again connections. And this kind of magazine approach is something that's very difficult to deliver in a physical space, in a museum space. In a museum space, you've got to be very, very kind of tightly curated and specific around those presentations. When you get into the web space, you can be much freer and allow your visitors to be able to just explore and have that kind of autonomy of experience that, that we're all sort of expecting and enjoying in the way that we engage with our culture in the 21st century.
0: My guest is Katrina Sedgwick, who's the Director and CEO of ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Federation Square. And this week, as we've heard, ACME has revealed details of its multi-platform museum model, which includes the story of the moving image and the Cinema 3 video-on-demand service, and also Gallery 5, dedicated to digital artworks. Before we explore the story of the moving image in a little bit more detail, Katrina, one of the challenges that I foresee with the model is that it may possibly be ahead of its time, particularly given what we all know are problematic issues with Australian broadband and internet speeds. People who may want to access some of the online experiences at ACME Will they be able to do so, given how slow the Australian internet can be?
1: Yes, yeah, I think they will. I mean, we've, we've been very careful with how we've created the site. We've worked with a fantastic company called Licorice. and for example, let's dive into the story of the moving image for, you, for example. When you go in there, it's a really beautiful, beautifully designed website that you flow through, it's got lots of text and images embedded in there but if for example you want to watch a video of the first few moments of Australian television on the birth of TV the video that you will be looking at is actually an embedded YouTube clip and you are able to watch it and then go back into the site. So we're very happy to be connecting to third-party services, and that stops us having to have these incredibly huge files, these incredibly massive downloads. You don't need to do that with us. It's like delving through any kind of, of normal website that, you know, do your shopping, yeah. <laughs> which we're all having to do. I don't see any barriers to access. And, again, I think what's fascinating with COVID, when you talk about a of its time, I mean, We were all, we had these expectations and I suppose these stereotypes and these internal barriers to how we would or would not engage with conversation or exhibitions and so on. Now I think they've gone and I think a lot of people who perhaps were anxious about using technology and I'm thinking for example some people in the older community have just had to let that go. I've just had to move on and and learn how to do this stuff. So I think the reticence people might have had six months ago to engage with this kind of multi-platform model will in large part has gone.
0: And speaking of that multi-platform model and speaking of the way it's been curated, looking, for example, if people go to acme.net.au and click on the story of the moving image, if we explore the way that the development and history of Australian television has been presented, yes, we begin with Bruce Gingell's famous welcome to television address. But then a little bit later, for example, when we talk about the way that Australia connected with an international community, the fact that there's a lovely juxtaposition between the Apollo 11 spacewalk, which Australians watched huddled around their screens and which Australian technology helped present, you've then contrasting that with the trailer for the working dog film The Dish, which taps into that history of the broadcast of the moon landing, for example. So... Those connections that have been made on the website will then, I assume, be echoed in the physical representation of the exhibition when it opens in 2021.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, you've absolutely highlighted this. We're the National Museum of Film, Television, Video Games, Digital Culture and Art. And all of those things are kind of separate on one level. On the other level... Their content, and that is how we now <laughs> history, consume stuff. It is content, these kind of art, none of us sit right across the arts. The silos that have traditionally been there are, are breaking down in, in fascinating ways, and certainly from an audience perspective, I think we, we're very excited by the opportunity to create these connections between these different forms and point out the influences, the way that video games, for example, have had such a kind of profound influence on the way that we use narrative, the way that we use scores, the way that we edit, for example, that's fascinating, you know. that's just a, a, a very tiny example and notion too that in a world of algorithms where we're fed content constantly by these machines you know human curation is more important than ever and our curators have spent a huge amount of time thinking about these juxtapositions and these connections and these influences across form and you'll find when you visit our physical museum for all next year when we open our doors that we've really mixed up form in a very interesting and entertaining way and you'll also see things like in our previous exhibition contemporary art for example was very much in one section it's dotted throughout the entire exhibition this time video games are present throughout they still have their own sort of little focus section australian film and television and games will still have its own section. but we're really mixing up form and there's a whole... We're using this thing called the lens, which Sam and the team and Second Stories have been our exhibition and experience designers have worked on. and we've also worked with Swinburne Centres for Design Innovation to create these lenses, which are a sort of cardboard recyclable tool that every visitor will be able to get, and it's sort of inspired by Viewmaster slides, and it's got a NFC chip embedded in it, and you pick one up as you enter into the exhibition and it enables you to collect... Anything that you're interested in as you go through, you might like a particular costume, you might be involved in some interactive experience and you want to record that, you might like a particular camera or you might want to pick up a particular piece of media or a clip. As you go through, you can collect all that stuff and when you get home, you'll be able to explore that much, much more deeply. But we're also creating what we're calling constellations, which enable you to discover connections between art forms or media that our curators have so, for example, Kurosawa, you're interested in, in the Kurosawa film that you've just watched, which connects to a Tarantino film, which connects to The Simpson, which connects to a video game, which connects to a particular video artist, and so on and so forth. So this sort of juxtaposition and connection curated by people for you to discover things you may never have considered before is absolutely central to the Renewed acne.
0: I'm very much looking forward to the renewed Acme opening its doors or reopening its doors in 2021. But until then, right now, you can jump online, acme.net.au and explore the story of the moving image. And coming up, you'll be able to dive into Gallery 5, a dedicated stream of online-only artworks, and explore or sit down in the comfort of your own home, but dive into Cinema 3, a video-on-demand service, which I believe is launching in November. But for more info, acme.net. Au. I've been talking with Katrina Sedgwick, the Director and CEO of the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Katrina, thanks so much for joining us on Triple R this morning. Thank you. Bryony Nainby is the Director of Craft Victoria and joins us to chat about Craft Contemporary. Bryony, welcome. Lovely to have you back on the air.
2: Thanks, Richard. It's lovely to be
0: here. Obviously, craft is so deeply entrenched in practice and a broad range of cultural practices. But in terms of your organisation and Craft Victoria, what role does it play in not only supporting craft practitioners, but in actively helping craft as an art form to evolve?
2: Well, I think one of the wonderful things about craft is that it is constantly evolving. And so we as an organisation are really passionately interested in looking at craft from all over the world and really engaging our audiences with new practices however we can. And so um, one of the ways that we have done this this year is through the Craft Contemporary Festival where we're presenting the work of artists who are working sometimes with very ancient techniques but using also very contemporary technologies and looking at how new developments in the world of technology and contemporary art are really influencing contemporary craft practice.
0: Can you give us some examples of how technological advancements are impacting on craft?
2: Well, for example, the first artist that I selected to be part of Craft Contemporary is this wonderful young artist, Rosie Gunsberg, who is a Melbourne-based artist. She works with jewellery and small objects and she's really interested in transformations between digital, handmade and the natural world and also how digital technology can disrupt traditional gold and silversmithing processes, which is what she was trained in. So the first work that I selected to be featured in Craft Contemporary was this molten lump of metal, which is a work created by Rosie called Bubble Wrap. And she created that in a residency in Estonia uh, last year where she participated in this ancient iron pouring process where over weeks beforehand the artists all collect all of this old metal and then they spend days melting it down in this giant forge and then she created this form uh, this mold using bubble wrap and used and created this piece by pouring the molten iron into it and so it's one of the pieces that you see in our craft poster walk and it's just this quite strange looking piece of metal but it has this sense of being something quite ancient but you can also just vaguely make out the impressions of bubble wrap, this you know very new contemporary material but I was interested in including her because her practice, we have a an online exhibition of her work as part of Craft Contemporary. Her practice also involves using hologram technology where she works in this sort of three-dimensional way with the hologram technology to design her pieces and then she hand-makes them using the goggles and VR technology to create the work. And so within the festival you can see this ancient piece of metal that's just been, you know, forged in the fire through to these extraordinary pieces which have been formed using hologram technology and then a whole range of other works that she's created as well using different contemporary technologies and they are extraordinary extraordinarily strange and beautiful objects.
0: Now Had we not been in the middle of a pandemic, Craft Contemporary would be an IRL event. Instead, it's a URL event, but not entirely. As you've mentioned, there's the Craft on the Street, a poster gallery, which is going up around throughout October. What was the aim of this, just to to surprise people by presenting them with contemporary artwork and imagery of contemporary craft in unexpected places, or
2: is there something more? Well, that was the primary aim, to put, you know, people people's experience of the outside world is so limited at the moment. And uh, so I really wanted to put something out on the streets that people might encounter on their daily walks, which would just be a surprising encounter with beauty. And so we selected six works by these fantastic craft artists and have put them up all around inner Melbourne. And it was really to not only to, you know, provide people with surprising experiences of craft, but also to really challenge people's understanding of what craft is. You know, I think people often when they think about craft, they have perhaps quite a traditional view of it. And these pieces, which are so um, contemporary, they're glass, glass, jewellery, ceramics, um, contemporary Indigenous weaving, uh, really just provides an overview of the breadth of practices that contemporary makers are working in. Now, in terms
0: of uh, the the artists who are participating in craft contemporary, given that Craft Victoria is based in the Melbourne CBD in Flinters Lane. The city of Melbourne alone is home to 140 cultures from around the world. How diverse are the artists and the practices represented in Craft
2: Contemporary? Uh, extraordinarily diverse. I mean, it, we've, we've got several Indigenous makers from across Victoria who are working in um, different ways. We had Jenna Lee, who is a wonderful a textile-based artist and she had a residency and a virtual residency at home with craft last week. We've got somebody like Manal Lawn who comes from an Indian background and she's a ceramicist who... Did a wonderful virtual studio presentation last weekend, and she's talking about how her Indian culture has really influenced the palette that she works in, and the you know, she's sort of looking at. That's some of the sari patterning and colours that she has memories of, and bringing that into her work. And we've got Kenny Jung Son, who's a Korean artist who works in the in in metal and who makes these wonderful sculptures that that are on exhibit through Modern Times Gallery and. You know, all of this can be viewed by going to the craft website, craft.org.au, and you just click on the Craft Contemporary button and it will take you through to our wonderful hub, which has links to the hundreds of artists who are participating um, and, you know, from a whole range of different cultural backgrounds.
0: Now, and not just a whole different range of cultural backgrounds, a whole range of craft practices as well, uh, some uh, which... People might expect to see on the site so uh, jewellery making for example others which people might be surprised by talk to us about toad busting
2: toad busting seems to be the hot favorite of the festival so there's this wonderful organization called vermin who went to the northern territory and worked with indigenous uh, park rangers to capture toads and be able to provide the skins for these to Melbourne designers. They just did this whole lot of research to be able to do this sort of ethically and in partnership with the Indigenous communities there so that um, not just Melbourne-based designers but Australian designers and artists have had this material to to work with to create these new forms. And one of the one of the hot favorites from the toad busting exhibition. It's a VR exhibition, which is a lot of fun, is this work by the Huxleys where they are doing this wonderful performance in their toad outfits that they've created and doing sort of karaoke to this fantastic tune. And I think it's It's one of the unmissable events of the festival.
0: It is a fascinating example of taking um, an invasive toxic species, the cane toad, and turning that into something that is destructive and and killing off native wildlife because they eat the toad thinking it's a native toad and its poison kills them. But taking this invasive toxic species and turning it into uh, works of art and craft. It's a a fascinating uh, kind of way to show that craft can not only be aesthetically beautiful, but has a role to play in broader society as well.
2: Absolutely. And we think that this is probably just the beginning of the work that Vermin's doing to try to make this material more interesting to to makers and designers. It's a really interesting project.
0: My guest is Bryony Nainby, the director of Craft Victoria, and we're talking about Craft Contemporary, uh, the festival which is on now. You mentioned earlier the idea, uh, well, the, the fact that part of the festival is presenting virtual studio tours, for example. You've also got virtual makers in residence. Um, Any concern that given after months and months of lockdown that what would normally be the audience for this may be a little, um, I don't know, kind of digitally exhausted?
2: We were very concerned about that, but we just, that has not been our experience. We had our first lot of open studio tours last weekend and we had about 50 people log on to Zoom to join us on this tour. And the engagement with the makers was really fantastic. So we've also found that with our makers in residence, which we're running each week, that people are really engaging with them through Instagram. And because the the works are so fascinating and the artists are, they're very present in these events that we're doing. It really just, even though we thought that working digitally might create a barrier for the program. In fact, what's happened is it's just opened it up to a much broader engagement. And we've had people joining us from all over the world who are just really interested to see what's happening in the world of contemporary craft in Australia.
0: Which is something that I've heard shared by a range of other festivals and organisations that the the digital pivot, to use that overused word, um, has opened up audiences significantly nationally and internationally. Yarra Valley Writers Festival, who had their inaugural festival this year, spoke about the fact that they were attracting international audiences who are now maintaining connection with them uh, and attending book clubs, for example. Somebody from New York uh, attending a book club so that they can keep in touch with what's happening in Australian literature. Are you hoping to see that same connectivity and uh, interconnected nature internationally from uh, as a, a, a long-term outcome perhaps of craft contemporary going online? Uh,
2: look, absolutely. And we... We, over the next 12 months, will be really working to change our operations and the way our website looks and operates so that we can become more and more this fantastic hub for promotion of Australian craft internationally. And there'll be lots of engagement opportunities that will provide people more and more reasons to continue to come back and which will provide opportunities for makers and audiences to link with each other and that's the really surprising thing we've found about this is that people are so keen to connect with each other and it just seems to have brought people together in a in a much more significant and engaged way than perhaps an in real life exhibition for event might because people are uh, tending to stay in touch and keeping uh, and just coming back and, and uh, participating more and more so we had a great turnout for our event that we hosted with the Victorian Woodworkers Association last night which was a really great talk we had about 70 people turn up to that we've got a wonderful ceramics round table talk happening next week and we think we'll have a huge turnout for that and those sort of events are bringing people from across the country together but also starting to really build those international audiences and interest in Australian craft practice.
0: If you are interested in Australian craft practice or just uh, the conversation with my guest Bryony Nainby has intrigued you, jump online www.craft.org.au forward slash craft contemporary to find out all the details. We've barely scratched the surface to talk about what is on offer for the Craft Contemporary Festival. But Bryony, thank you so much for joining us and all the best to you and your organisation now and in the future. Thanks
2: so much, Richard. Good to talk to you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: David Park is the Artistic Director of the Korean Film Festival in Australia and joins us to give us an overview of this year's programme. David, a very good morning to you.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: So this is the 11th year of the festival, and I'm sure back at the start of the year when you were working on programming, you probably weren't anticipating, unless you're very clever, a pandemic that would mean that the festival could not screen in cinemas as normal. How has the pandemic impacted the programming?
3: Yeah, you hit right on the head. I mean, we were definitely planning for a physical festival. I think every single film festival in Australia has been gearing up for a physical festival this year. But this pandemic happened and we were actually really trying to still push for a physical festival about three months ago, I think, up to three months mark. And we just realized, oh, it's just so much more sensible for us. Although we really love the physicality of having a physical festival. uh, We just really felt that it was sensible to go online. And I guess it's been a whole different beast to uh, kind of uh, wrangle and... The beautiful thing is the silver lining of it all is that we're now not limited by the venues that we're in. We can go all over Australia with this and yeah, we've been able to curate a free program online so that anyone anywhere in Australia can take part now in our festival.
0: It really is one of the silver linings of COVID, isn't it? That suddenly events, whether they're film festivals or exhibitions or theatre productions, whatever it may be, are so much more accessible. Instead of an audience having to, say, I don't know, drive from regional Victoria to Melbourne to see films at the festival, they can watch films from the comfort of their own
3: home. Yeah, and I think it's really fair considering that, I mean, I've heard Melbourne is still very much in lockdown and the fans of cinema just haven't been able to make their way to even watch the most beloved films on screen. So it just definitely feels more, it sits well with us to know that, you know, everybody can watch these films from the same conditions, from the same comfort of their homes.
0: In terms of the impact on the programming, I'm curious to know, would you, as the, the festival's artistic director, would you normally, in a, in a in an average year in which the festival is presented, would you be flying back and forth from Australia to Korea, for example, to see films, meet filmmakers, talk to distributors there, for example? Has the, the pandemic grounded you in that regard? And if so, has that restricted the program in any way?
3: Most definitely. I think we do definitely have at least one member of the team fly out to film festivals in Korea and we do definitely have to, we do love the component of meeting our distributors face to face. We have developed a very uh, nice friendship and uh, relationship with these people. And yeah, it just feels very weird to be grounded and just to be stuck in the office and try to navigate through this whole thing online. I mean, it is possible. I mean, we have been exchanging emails and, you know, you can still call these people. But uh, there is this element of face-to-face and just seeing these films on the big screen that this will never replicate. Yeah, the,
0: the, that sense of not only, as you say, the face-to-face connection with people, whether that be talking to a complete stranger about a film or, uh, in your case, talking to a, a filmmaker about their film, uh, yeah, that's not possible. But there is still that sense of community, uh, knowing that uh, people are watching films together online, using hashtags to, to comment on screenings and so forth. And as you say, the, the pandemic may have stopped uh, members of the, the Korean Film Festival and Australia team flying to Korea, but the films can still be seen in Australia. Talk to us about some of the films that have been programmed. Are there particular themes that have emerged, for example, that you weren't expecting? Are there particular kind of genres of cinema which kind of might surprise Australian audiences?
3: Yeah, uh, I think uh, we were able to be a little bit more brave with our selections this year. We've kind of tried to stray away from a lot of the mainstream films and kind of give more spotlight to really great art house films, really good indie flicks, just purely because back then, previous years, we've had to fill physical seats in the cinema, and then we were restricted by um, ticket pricing and all sorts of other logistical elements, and this year I think we've been able to kind of program a little bit more down-to-earth films that have really resonated with the team and we do definitely span several genres uh, to create very interesting look into a multifaceted aspect of Korean cinema which will give audiences an idea of the current trending social topics so we have very powerful female stories historical retellings and various uh, family dramas which would give our audiences a really good idea of what Korea is like. I mean, we can't travel now, so the best thing we've got now is to experience another culture is uh, through a film. And uh, we've kind of tried to really replicate that sentiment into the programming this year.
0: Great to hear, too, that uh, the again, uh, a silver lining of the pandemic is the fact that you've been able to move away from the more mainstream and wh- kind of Korean cinema. And when you say mainstream, I'm assuming you mean what more Hollywood-influenced styles of filmmaking to focus on uh, on more independent, kind of more original styles of film.
3: Yes, most definitely, most definitely. Uh, I really feel that these are the films that we should be programming a lot more because a lot of the mainstream films, uh, they definitely get their own set of, of spotlights. But I think our duty is to kind of give the spotlight to other films that haven't really been able to have that same platform, but are, are equally as, as worthy and, uh, well, in some cases, uh, a lot more worthy to be seen by a lot of eyes. Um, they're just so sensible, uh, poignant, um, great uh, messages that... Uh, it, can be universally uh, received. And we're very happy with um, the lineup that we've been able to come to. And uh, and one other thing is that we're very lucky that our distributors have really agreed to uh, share our vision in going online instead of having uh, physical one screenings. Because, yeah, the online uh, platform, I'm sure you'd know, is, is a whole, different piece to wrangle.
0: It's been really interesting seeing how different film festivals have responded to kind of having to present programming, kind of streaming digitally online. And as you say, yeah, some festivals have... uh, particularly with some of their key titles, it's like, right, you can only watch it once, you have to pay X amount for a ticket, it's streaming at 8pm until 10pm and that's it, that's your only chance. Other festivals uh, have said, well, kind of no, you've got this entire window of three days or a week or two weeks to watch the films as well. So great to hear that your distributors have come along on that journey to make sure that the films are accessible and that they can be watched for free.
3: Yeah, most definitely, Uh, and um, our films are free and online, but yeah, we are definitely adhering to trying to replicate a physical screening as much as possible, so uh, we do definitely have a streaming window, we do definitely operate by a schedule this year as well, Um, and yes. are required to kind of press play within a certain time so that uh, we can still replicate a sense of uh, communal screening where we can kind of come together on a social platform afterwards to talk about this film and to discuss the ideas that were raised. And, um, yeah, we're quite excited to see how it will play out
0: now talk to us about some of the the individual films in the program this year for the korean film festival in australia which uh, uh is running from the 29th of october until the 5th of november and i'll give the website details in a moment you mentioned for example that there's a number of films exploring kind of uh powerful female stories talk to us about some of the films kind of uh, in that theme
3: yeah definitely um There is a particular film that I really adore called uh, Lucky chan and that would probably be, I think, screening on the last day of the festival, and it's just a really enchanting tale about a female film producer who kind of needs to take her life into a new direction after suddenly uh, finding that um, the filmmaker she's been working for for about 40 years uh, has has suddenly um, passed away. And um, she's homeless, friendless, and penniless. And, you know, this is just all the ingredients of a very tragic and somber film. But the film director has kind of taken on a very hopeful, uh, cheery, and a comedic tone. And uh, it's a very feel-good story, I feel, um, about a film producer who needs to kind of Um, see the silver linings in life and it just kind of really, I just thought, um, replicated the current COVID situation where people, uh, a a lot of people have kind of gone into a new normal that they have to adjust to and uh, although things seem a little bleak and uh, down, uh, we kind of have to see the silver lining and everything and see the positivity of things. So it's a very feel-good indie film that I just really want to um, have our audiences check out. If uh, there is one film you want to check out at the film festival, yeah, I think this should be it.
0: The flip side of Feel Good, one of the other films that caught my eye, An Old Lady, which not only has uh, a a 69-year-old female protagonist and we don't get to see that many great roles for for older women on our screens, and it's not necessarily, it's certainly by the sound of it not a feel-good film, but a significant story about elder abuse and a woman fighting back.
3: Yes, definitely. Uh, It's a very good pick, Um, and it was really one of the, uh, one of the controversial films of the Busan international film festival last year, which really caught our eyes. And um, the story follows uh, uh, an old lady uh, as per the title. And her name is Choo Jung, and she's 69 years old. And uh, during one of her therapy, physical therapy sessions, she is raped by uh, a male nurse. And um, I guess it, Follows her fight for justice and just the di- things that are working against her is society's uh, uh, pre um, pre cognitive uh, notions of why would a good looking young male nurse aide uh, do anything to you, a sixty nine year old uh, old lady, um, and it's about society's, uh, judgments and society's, uh, uh, notions about the elderly and kind of their, um, I, I guess not really disrespect, but kind of just their, um, ideas and biases about that, that demographic and how she needs to, uh, find her dignity, find her truth and, um, yeah, find the justice.
0: The other elements of the program, uh, obviously, there's uh, there's some crime, there's some mystery, there's some family drama, and comedy as well.
3: Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, we've been able to add a, a film called Mr. Zoo. Uh, it's definitely a lot more lighter in tone. It's kind of like a Korean Dr. Doolittle Little. Um, about a top-secret agent who, after an accident, is able to talk to uh, animals. And uh, he needs to utilize this power to find a uh, Chinese very special Chinese panda called Ming Ming. Um, it's a very feel good uh, comedy drama, and I think we could use a good comedy in this time.
0: I think we could definitely all use a good laugh. The Korean Film Festival in Australia is running online. Go to Kofia K O F F I A. Coffia, as in korean film festival in australia.com.au the festival is running from the 29th of october to the 5th of november films are free but uh, jump online you can investigate the individual films in the program and find out about how you can watch them online i've been chatting with david park the korean film festival in australia's artistic director david thank you so much for joining us here at triple r and kind uh, of it it kind of just i guess is a a final question uh We've seen during the pandemic that audiences uh, have turned to the arts in ever-increasing numbers, uh, that, that art has really provided a solace and a sense of connection during this time of isolation. Uh, many people, that, say, nonetheless, uh, the art they're con- consuming has been kind of has been feel-good, has been disposable or uh, perhaps has been nostalgic. Uh, For people who haven't embraced Korean cinema yet, despite some of the the great films like uh, The Host and Parasite and so much more that have caught the world's imagination in recent years, what can you say to them to say now is the time to to, to embrace Korean cinema? I
3: yeah this is a really good question. and uh, I think art definitely brings people together, and uh, I think film, for example, really brings uh, more insight and knowledge um, into a, a different lifestyle, uh, a, a life of uh, how we register emotions for uh, completely different people and um I really hope um, if viewers have um, seen films like Parasite, that there is a whole plethora of uh, other films that uh, are are just as good. And um, I think, you know, with the Korean Film Festival going online and being free this year, available to anyone anywhere in Australia, um, there's no better time, no better excuse to hop on and watch a Korean film. And it's because we're, All human at the end of the day we share the same um, emotions we share the same um, things that make us happy and sad and for us to kind of be able to uh, relate to our neighbors um, is one of the greatest things that we could kind of do in this in this time where we're just physically not able to do so so let's do that emotionally let's connect culturally and yeah uh can't stop by seeing a Korean film.
0: Uh, you can watch films at the Korean Film Festival in Australia from the 29th of October to the 5th of November. Details at koffia, AU. I've been talking with David Park, the Artistic Director of the Festival. David, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's been a lovely chat.
0: So what have you been doing in COVID-19, I wonder? Have you been taking the opportunity for self-reflection? Have you been exercising? Have you, like me, gone, well, I can't go to the gym, stuff it. That's a great excuse to sit in the couch and stuff my face with chocolate or maybe just something you want to confess about what you've been doing during COVID. Uh, I'm joined on the line by Joseph Appleton, who's the co-lead artist on a project called Corona Confessions, uh, which is being presented by the independent artist collective Flag Inc. Joseph, a very good morning to you.
4: Good morning, Richard.
0: So you're hoping to get people to confess things, uh, kind of using the opportunity of COVID and uh, the, the, the shutdown. What kind of confessions are you looking for?
4: Well, all kinds. So we're looking for secrets or confessions from lockdown, um, dreams or hopes or desires for the future uh, once lockdown is lifted, as well as um, nostalgic yearnings for life before lockdown. So, really, anything at all we're hoping to find, we really want to gather a snapshot of what it's like to live in Melbourne at this moment uh, throughout the pandemic and throughout lockdown.
0: What will you be doing with the confessions once they've been kind of submitted?
4: So, we're hoping to do two things. Uh, firstly, we're going to gather all of the material, and then we have a core ensemble, a youth ensemble. So Naomi Brower, the artistic director, and myself will work with the youth ensemble with all of the material that we collect, all of these confessions. And then we want to build a performance piece. What that will look like, we don't know. Uh, flag in the past, we've done shows in garages or shop fronts. So it really just depends on how lockdown progresses in the early stages of 2021. But we also want to create a casebook um, to archive all of these confessions and then distribute it across Melbourne's libraries.
0: It's, the thing that intrigues me, I guess, about this project is we've seen some of the power that can come out of Confession Through in, with other projects. And I'm thinking one of the first that springs to mind, for example, is the US artist uh, uh, Frank Warren, his kind of post-secret project in which people kind of created homemade postcards and sent in anonymous uh, kind of secrets and confessions uh, up in Brisbane the, uh, the the mob the independent theater group the good room have created the series of uh, of quite sublime theatrical performances again from kind of uh, comments and secrets and confessions and ideas kind of submitted Mm -hmm. anonymously by artists. So there's so much potential here to not only, as you say, have a snapshot of Melbourne in COVID, but to really dive down deep into the human condition.
4: Yeah, well, we've been coming across uh, many kinds of confessions, from, um, you know, adultery to um, people being addicted to watching um, TV soaps. To um, other things like uh, we've had one around animal cruelty and some other forms of uh, behaviour bordering on the criminal. You know, people engaging in uh, changing careers into uh, socially distant sex work. So there's there's a real range of uh, confessions or dreams, desires that are coming out of this. And and what unique about our project is the, um, the youth ensemble that we work with, they'll be the ones who will be driving the response and creating the work that comes out of it.
0: There's, what are the legal ramifications of some of this? If, what, what, what would you do if somebody confessed a murder?
4: Um, that's a good question. I haven't actually thought about that. I mean, they are all anonymous. Um, look, certainly, if, if it is something that is uh, seriously criminal, then, of course, we, we would have an ethical obligation to do some reporting into that.
0: But hopefully that doesn't arise. I'm imagining that people who've committed serious crimes, uh, they may want to get it off their chest, but writing it on a, uh, in an email, uh, for example, and sending it in is probably not the way they're going to go about it.
4: No, I, I highly doubt that.
0: So looking, I know that some of the confessions that have come in, uh, you've had somebody admitting admitting to killing their housemate's pet, uh, which is a little bit... uh, You've had somebody else confessing uh, kind of about the deterioration of a friendship after a friend's family hoarded toilet paper and wouldn't share when the other kind of group ran out. So this kind of range of of stuff, right through to the people talking about kind of confronting themselves and confessing how unhappy they were about themselves and how they've used this opportunity of of lockdown for deep and important self-reflection and self-change.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's a real broad range and, you know, some are really heartbreaking, others uh, are very humorous, um, but it really does speak to the uniqueness of uh, this experience and what it's been like um, for various individuals. And, you know, from that, uh, those individual experiences, we're hoping to gather a, a collective understanding of, of what life has been like in 2020.
0: Is it too soon to start to get a snapshot of that, given the how many confessions have you had so far? And do they start to give some kind of hint of a, of a collective response or is it too soon?
4: Well, what we're noticing is that the longer... So we started, firstly, through a virtual online letterbox, and then once uh, lockdown eased uh, slightly, um, we started to place physical letterboxes around Melbourne, and so we've, uh, we've placed them all around within our five-kilometre radius, um, so people can stumble across them and put a concession in. Um, and I can tell you some of those locations, but what we have noticed is that the intensity of the concessions has increased as time um, in lockdown has increased also.
0: That doesn't surprise me, I guess. The, the, it's a, a way for people to relieve the external pressure and the tension of mm-hmm. living in a pandemic by kind of opening up their hearts to you.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So how do people submit an anonymous confession for this project presented by the independent artist collective Flag Inc.?
4: So there's a couple of ways. Uh, Firstly, you can visit our website if you want to submit on the uh, virtual letterbox, which is flaginc.space. Or you can stumble across, go for a walk if you live in the inner north and try and stumble across one of our physical letterboxes. Um, there's some hidden in the Edinburgh Gardens, uh, Northgate Town Hall, there's actually one over the road from Triple R around the pub um, and if you walk up and down the Merry Creek Trail or through Carlton Gardens you should be able to find some physical letterboxes where you can submit a concession. I can
0: already hear kind of ears pricking up around Melbourne as people go, oh, I've got a, I can go for a walk for two hours. I should be able to find one of the letterboxes on my way. So, uh, uh-huh. but uh, as you said, if they can't find a physical letterbox or if they're listening to us from outside the inner north and particularly uh, uh, 5K or more from the inner north, then, uh, flaginc.space, uh, and you can leave an anonymous confession there for Flag Inc's uh, kind of Corona Confessions project. Uh, I'm Joseph, I've got to say I'm really intrigued to see what will grow out of this.
4: Yeah, well, us too. And also we, we welcome um, both confessions from the community, but also if people want to get involved, uh, particularly in the um, distribution and the publication of the casebook, um, you know we're a, a community-run not-for-profit. So if anybody wants to get involved, and they can uh, reach out to us. And you can check out all of the um, confessions we're posting them daily too on our Instagram account, which is Instagram.com/forward/slash/flag-inc.
0: Fantastic. I will have to check those out when I get home. Joseph Appleton, thank Thank you so much for joining us on the program today and uh, I hope this has encouraged a few more people to get something off their chest uh, in the name of anonymity and art. I've been chatting with Joseph Appleton from Flag Inc. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard.